If you're here and this is the first time for you, or if you haven't been here in a while and you don't remember who I am, my name is Tim. Welcome to Life Church. We're so glad you're here today. Um, I want to tell you that as the senior pastor of this church, I'm learning. Uh, I have learned over years to be, to try to just be ready in season and out of season, as they say, uh, for whatever it is that God wants to do. There are some times where you just get into a rhythm and you just. You, you know kind of you kind of know what to anticipate every Sunday kind of Sunday becomes a, a, a rhythm and sometimes that's what God is doing that's really really good sometimes um, you're spend a whole week writing a sermon and then uh, and then you know on Sunday morning you cannot preach that sermon that is today so uh, I, I want to ask you to give me the grace of uh, a, a message that that is potentially, a little less put together than you're used to, but we're trusting the Lord today. Um, and so I, I want to share with you a message uh, that if I were to give this message a title, I would just call it Faithfulness in Doubt. Um, I, I, am, I am believing that God has a word for us about faithfulness in doubt. If you have your Bible with you today, would you open it to the book of John chapter 20? And I want to tell you a story um, about a guy that gets a bad rap. Uh, let me read to you. Uh, if it, and by the way, because this is relatively new sermon today, uh, you won't see this on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible book with you, uh, bust your phone out real quick and just go to Bible.com and you can find John chapter 20. I'm going to read this to you out of the CSB version or translation of Scripture. And uh, it starts... After Jesus has, now we know, willingly given his life, but let's put it rooted in the context of his disciples from their perception, uh, from their perspective and what they could see with their eyes in that moment, it starts after Jesus was brutally murdered. Okay? So, uh, happy Sunday. We talk about death and doubt, hopelessness on a Sunday morning. Whew, Jesus helped me. It says, but Thomas, called twin, uh, Didymus was the, the actual term, uh, but uh, they called him twin. It was an interesting, they, gave, they had a nickname for him. Um, we don't actually know him as that nickname, do we? If you've been going to church for a while, what's the nickname that we give to Thomas? Doubting Thomas, right? So in this moment, he's called Thomas the twin. This is the story of how the church decided to rename a man. Uh, it says, but Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, he was one of the twelve disciples, he was not with them when Jesus came. Pause. What just happened? What did we miss? Jesus has been brutally murdered, remember, from the disciples' perspective, right? But what we now know is that Jesus has risen from the dead, right? And there's a moment right before this moment where Thomas, the twin, who was not with the other 12 at the moment, the moment that that's referring to was Jesus shows up in the room with the disciples, right? It says that they were behind closed doors, that the doors were locked, they were not excited in that moment. It says they were afraid in that moment of all of the stuff that was going on on the outside because Jesus, the one who was their Messiah, the one that they were absolutely certain was going to overthrow Roman rule and establish the people of, of Israel as the, the reigning people in the world, and finally the kingdom of heaven is going to reign on earth. It's going to be absolutely amazing. That guy is dead and gone, and they are in grief in a room together, but Jesus shows up, right? He, he shows up, and it's absolutely incredible, miraculous moment, but Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling them, we've seen the Lord! Imagine yourself in that moment. It says, but he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 26 says three words that we often gloss over in this story. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. 
Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus, we invite you in this moment to begin to speak to us what you would say from this text today in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I like a good TV show as, the next, uh, as much as the next guy. One of the things that I, I like and sometimes I'm also infuriated by I have this kind of interesting love-hate relationship with this moment in, this, in TV shows, is when uh, you've seen an entire episode of a show, and, and, and then you watch the next episode, and it's very clearly the exact same day or series of events, but, but it follows a different character, right? It's like the redundant episode, where there was a character who wasn't present in the group during the first day uh, or, or the, first, the last episode, and then the next episode follows what that character was doing. The reason that's helpful and the reason why storytellers will, will do that is because when that, that character shows back up in the group and they've had two very distinctly different experiences, it makes a lot of sense as to why maybe there's some tension or some conflict or some confusion or maybe they begin to kind of split paths and the group begins to break up a little bit or, or you begin to realize like, oh, now I get why at the end of the episode when that character just showed up out of nowhere and they were being weird, now I understand why they were being weird because there was a whole lot of stuff that I didn't know happened to them in the middle of what we were watching in the last episode. Sometimes that can be infuriating. Sometimes if it's not written well, it can be, you know, just like feel like a throwaway waste of an episode. But sometimes it reveals a ton about character development that you just didn't understand uh, when you were watching the episode without its context. I say that to you because I wonder sometimes what this story looked like from Thomas's perspective. And so I wonder if you could indulge me for a minute by imagining with you the other side of this story. The other side of the story of the man that we call Doubting Thomas. Now, I just want to preface to you what I'm about to share with you is not scripture. Uh, I'm not proposing to you that I've, uh, I'm adding anything to the Gospels uh, or, or anything like that. But, but we're just going to engage in the ancient practice, which has been something that has been done in church history among Christians for a long, long time. I'm just saying this for the religious people in the room. Um, it is okay if we can use our imaginations for a moment. I'm not telling you what I'm about to say is exactly what happens. I'm inviting you into what Disney Plus has invited us to do, is to ask, what if? Okay? What if? And I wonder if maybe we could learn something from this. Let me, let me read to you a version of this story that possibly could have been Thomas's experience. A man named Thomas commits his life to follow Jesus. He sees this man named Jesus perform incredible miracles. He listens to him teach radically deep truths about the kingdom the kingdom of God. Thomas becomes over time certain, absolutely convinced that what he has seen proves that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Thomas then expects Jesus to overthrow Roman rule and to establish a new Jerusalem as the center of God's kingdom on earth. And then Jesus is illegally arrested, brutally murdered, and buried in a stranger's tomb. Thomas is crushed. He's confused, and he's angry, and he's suddenly found himself second-guessing everything. Sitting in a room with his friends, he just can't stop thinking thoughts like, I could have sworn Jesus was the Messiah. Did we all get played? Was Jesus just another con man? Am I an absolute fool? Jesus, uh, Thomas's mind won't stop reeling like this, and he, so he finds that he needs some air. So he, he goes out for the morning, he walks, and you know one of those walks where you just walk. He sits by some water that he finds in silence. He feels or he, anger swell up as he sees some fish in the water, and that reminds him of something that Jesus said once and did uh, a miracle one time. And, and this anger churns, and it mixes with this heart-wrenching confusion, and suddenly Thomas finds himself crying. He cries until his sobs reduce back into silence, and slowly, over time, Thomas stands up. He makes his way back into the house where his friends are. 
and he's hoping to find some kind of solace among his band of brothers, thinking at least I'm not alone in what I'm feeling right now. At the door, Thomas pauses, one of those pauses where you reach for a doorknob and you just take a deep breath before you enter. He's preparing himself to rejoin his friends in a practice that you might call sitting shiva. It's a Jewish tradition where when someone that you love dies, you just sit in a house for a while and honor their memory and tell stories. Sometimes there's laughter. Most of the time there's fear and grief and sadness and what does this mean for us now? And that's amplified because of who they believe Jesus was going to be. Thomas is preparing to enter into that moment again, but he's surprised because he Here's what sounds like commotion on the other side of the door. It sounds almost like laughter. So slowly, Thomas opens the door, and he sees a celebration happening. His friends are hugging and laughing with each other. Peter's in the corner jumping up and down. And suddenly Peter catches his eye. He runs over to him, right? Uh, Thomas is standing there in utter disbelief of what he's seeing, and Peter yells at him in, in absolute Peter fashion. He goes, Thomas, he's alive. We saw him. We've seen the Lord. It, it takes Thomas a, a minute for him to, to, to wrap his head around the moment that he's in. And, and it takes even longer for his friends to settle down and for him to get some kind of coherent story out of them. But once he finally understood what they were saying, Thomas felt that same sense of confusion and anger begin to swell up in his heart all over again. Thomas wanted to believe his friends. I mean, he's done life with these people for three years. They were so convinced. But he just got off that ride. He wasn't sure that his heart could take it anymore. I'm not ready to do this all over again. After a ton of conversation, Thomas finally comes right out and he makes his feelings clear. Look, guys, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, if I don't put my finger into the mark of the nails, and if I don't put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And Thomas's friends were confused. They were saddened by his answer. They knew what they had seen. They were there. Thomas just missed it. If you would just believe the story that we were telling you. But they couldn't get him to join in the narrative. They couldn't get him to trust them. The other 11 began to talk amongst themselves. And what they agreed to was that they were going to make sure that Thomas stayed close to the community just in case Jesus showed up again. And also because one of their other friends, Judas, had just taken his own life, and they were not about to lose another brother to depression. Thomas had nowhere to go. He had given everything to this story, so he stayed. Even though every single comment about Jesus being alive seemed to reopen a wound that had never even had time to begin to heal in the first place, and this goes on for seven long, excruciating days. There were awkward moments when his friends were talking about Jesus being alive, and Thomas would just get quiet. Sometimes he would just get up and walk to another room in the house or go back to the water where he saw the fish and got angry and cried, and he would, he would yell at God. Often he would look up into the sky and beg God to show him if Jesus was really the Messiah or to give him the courage to go back and help his friends realize the truth that this was all a hoax and we can just finally move on with our lives. It was hell for a week. On the 10th day after Jesus was killed, Thomas was in the house with his friends. The doors were locked, closed for the day, and Thomas was exhausted in more ways than one. His heart was broken. But all of a sudden, Jesus just appears in the room, kind of anticlimactically, is just not there, and then suddenly there. For Thomas, everything slows down. It's like all of the air gets sucked out of the room with a snap of a finger. Thomas looks at what he thinks is Jesus. He rubs his eyes. Surely he's hallucinating. After all, I haven't slept in days. 
And he hears what sounds like the voice of his old friend Jesus say, peace be with you to the people in the room. And then this mirage of a Messiah turns and walks towards him. Thomas could hear his heart beating in his ears. His palms were sweating. Felt a little bit like he was going to pass out and vomit all at the same time. Tears streaming down his face uncontrollably. And suddenly everything snaps into the sharpest focus that he's experienced in days as he hears Jesus speak directly to him. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless. Believe. Through tears, Thomas blurts out, my Lord and my God. Thomas suddenly just loses all strength in his legs. He cannot stand up anymore, and he falls forward, and Jesus, who is utterly real and completely present, catches him and just holds him up while Thomas weeps in his arms. This goes on for minutes, and it's one of those like beautiful but awkward moments where Jesus and Thomas are just completely ignoring everyone else around, and for a couple of moments, you know, everyone around them is hoping that they don't sneeze and blow the moment that they're totally in right now. They don't know what to do. They don't know if they're supposed to watch this thing. Should I look out the window? It's just, what am I, what am I supposed to do in this moment? And in the middle of that, none of the other people in the room matter. It's just Thomas, and it's just Jesus. And they're just standing there crying together. Eventually, Thomas is able to stand again. And Jesus puts his hands on his shoulders. He moves him back so he can see him face to face. And with a smile on his face, he says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. And interestingly enough, Thomas feels no rebuke in this moment. He feels no judgment. He just feels the love and a a sudden rush of remembering all of the times when Jesus had the perfect thing to say. And in that instant, Thomas makes a vow. Silently in his heart, but definitely before God. That he would tell people for the rest of his life that Jesus is alive. That night, Thomas sleeps better than he slept in longer than he could ever remember. And nearly 40 years later, on December 21st, 72 AD, the Apostle Thomas was martyred for his unwavering commitment to share the story of his friend, the living Messiah, King Jesus. Can I tell you something? This is not the story of doubting Thomas. This is the story of transparent Thomas, for sure. This is definitely the story of honest Thomas. This is absolutely the story of overcame his doubts Thomas. And thank God for this story. And if you'd allow me to, I'd like to just ask you a few questions in reflection on this story today. The first question is this. Are we this honest with the dark places of our own soul? Because you have them. Do you trust God like this with your brokenness? Can you bring your full and honest self to Jesus? There's a story I like in the, in the Gospel of Mark that models this really, really well. In Mark chapter 9, it says, So they brought the boy to him. There was this kid who had a problem. He was demon-possessed. His disciples tried and failed to help this kid. Kind of like how we often try and fail to help other people. <laughs> Welcome to being human. It says, when the, when the Spirit saw him, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good line, when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell on the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. Gotta love how completely unbothered Jesus is. 
by a boy ro foaming at the mouth and ro rolling around convulsing, right? Huh? He interviews the dad, right? From child childhood, he says, it's been happening since he was a kid. And many times it's thrown him into fire and tried to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out of him, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. But the boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him up, and he stood up. There's a ton going on in that story, like a whole sermon series worth of stuff going on in that story, but, but I just want you to pay attention to the dad, right? Here's what we know about the dad as we think about Thomas's story. He wasn't hiding his doubt. He wasn't trying to play a game. He's not trying to look good, right? Jesus goes, how long has it been happening? And, and he doesn't like list off all of the different ways that he's tried to be the dad of the year. He's just in a crisis moment, and he's bringing his son to somebody who maybe can do something about it. But he's not 100% sure. And, and we see that in the way that he, he talks to Jesus and goes, if you can do anything. And the, and the response that Jesus gives to him is nuanced. Right? He challenges his commitment by saying, wait, if, if you can believe or, or if you can do it, right? anything is possible for those who believe. What do, you, what do you mean if I can? Of course I can. But, but Jesus doesn't leave his comments there because the other part of the nuanced response that Jesus gives to him is that he doesn't actually rebuke him. Right? There isn't a moment where Jesus goes, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, time out. You said the word doubts? You, you said unbelief? Oh, no. Uh, miracle's off, buddy. Sorry. Because there's a standard, and you obviously don't, like, you must be at least this tall to ride this miracle ride, and you just express doubts that put you, like, sorry, man, your kid's going to die. Jesus doesn't do that. He, he doesn't even respond to the comment where Jesus says, I believe, help my unbelief. Just like how Jesus was ignoring the commotion of the son while he was writhing in the, on the ground and interviews the dad to get the information he needed, when the dad began to writhe in his own unbelief, he ignores that and turns and does the miracle for the son. That's profoundly important. It, it turns out that Thomas and the father both teach us something super important, vital for our faith. That Jesus does not require doubt to leave before he will enter a moment. Jesus doesn't need us to have full faith before he will demonstrate full power or full love or even full presence. So the question, what are you doing with your fear and your doubts and your anxiety and your depression and your anger or your brokenness or your being a human. And for those of us who are tempted inside of our hearts to say, I don't, I don't have any doubts. <laughs> for those of you at at home watching online, you did not hear, over here, someone said, I doubt that. That's the sermon point. <laughs> yeah. That, that idea itself is rooted in fear that we don't measure up to the standard of God or God's people, right? It's rooted in doubt itself that God would still love us if we were completely honest about the fact that sometimes we wake up and think, is this all just nuts? I mean, after all, it's been so long since the last time I felt God do anything. 
But God has a gift for us when we come to him with our doubt and our broken places. Psalm 94, 19 says, when doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. He replaces our doubts with his comfort often. Often is a key word in that sentence. Thomas teaches us to be honest about where we're at emotionally and spiritually and in the physical reality of our journey with Jesus. And the Father in that story in the Gospel of Mark teaches us to bring our doubts to Jesus right along with the rest of our needs. Bring all of it. Bring all of it. Don't try to show Jesus how perfect you are. He already knows you're not. He knows your doubts better than you. So just be honest. So the next we need to ask in this story about Thomas, are we willing to hold on while doubt has a hold of us. And Thomas had to sit with his doubt and his pain and his anger and his grief for a week and a half. Can you? Would you? Or do you feel that Jesus owes you an answer? It's a tricky, it's a tricky question. Would you, would you sit with your pain for 10 days? Would you love Jesus if he doesn't heal the person you've been praying for? Will you stay committed to him when they die or when it falls apart or when you don't have enough or when you aren't enough? And what if it's longer than 10 days? Can you trust that God is your comforter even in the middle of your discomfort? I'm reminded of a moment in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, earlier in John's telling of the story of Jesus. Jesus is saying some wild stuff because, you know, he's Jesus. And he says some stuff, and it says, when many of his disciples heard this, this is John chapter 6, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this because, you know, they're the church, he asked them, does this offend you? This is king of questions. It says, then, then what, if you were up to, what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. This, that response, by the way, makes a little bit more sense in context, but I want you to hear all of what Jesus says here. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and, and, spirit and life, but there are some among you who don't believe. Now, jump down to verse uh, 65, John chapter 6. He says, now, he says to his disciples, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples, this, weren't, this was not the crowd, this was not the onlookers, these are people counted as disciples. It says many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. We're in John chapter 6, and he's already decreasing the size of his church. They turned back and they no, no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered. Of course, Simon Peter has an answer for this question. He says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We, we could preach the sermon about how, you know, be like Peter and say that there's nowhere else to go. But, but I, I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus in this moment, I think what we can learn is that Jesus doesn't seem to be fully comfortable or interested in making us comfortable. Jesus lost followers, it almost seems like on purpose sometimes. It's like he made it hard so that he would know that you were really committed if you stayed anyway. So then we say, yeah, be like Peter, but understand that when Jesus makes it hard, it's not because he's being cruel. It's actually because he thinks something better could happen on the other side if you stay with him. It's as if he knows that discomfort is actually good for us. Pastor Rick Warren is known for saying, Jesus is far more interested in your character than in your comfort. Jesus didn't change his message when people left or when they were uncomfortable with it because difficult moments have a way of building us up if we don't give up. 
Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And James 1, we studied this last summer, James 1, 1 through 4 says, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience very various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and, in, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Thomas finds himself in the middle of grief and pain. And Jesus did not leave him hanging because he was cruel. He let that moment linger so that Thomas would become a model of the kind of faith that grows up in a person who is willing to wait on God. Thomas went from uh, not being able to give his faith to Jesus to being willing to give up his very life. And in fact, that's exactly what happened to him as he becomes a, a martyr of the early church. And, and we, as followers of Jesus, we are blessed when we put our faith into Jesus or onto Jesus in the middle of our waiting. After all, that's what he said to Thomas, right? You believe because you can see, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. So we learn that there is actually a blessing for those of us who hold on to Jesus, even if it feels like he's not actually present. But then the other lesson that we learn here is that Thomas did not run away from the community. So notice what Thomas did do. He came to terms with where he was at, right? He was self-aware, and he was honest with himself. And he told his friends where he was at. He was aware of the people around him, and then he was honest with his community. So that's what Thomas did do. Notice what he did not do. He did not hide the truth. He did not pretend that he was okay. He did not run away, and he did not become an enemy just because he was hurt or angry. Thomas teaches us that if you do, that, that you, he teaches us that you do not have to be whole or healthy to be a part of God's community. And, and I think secondly, he teaches us that being broken is not permission to project your brokenness onto those around you. He stayed. He stayed. But Thomas actually can't teach us that lesson about staying on his own. He needed a response to his staying. And so this is the third question that we would ask of the day. Are we as welcoming to strugglers around us as the disciples were for Thomas? Thomas is, is, is not the only one who teaches us that, that doubt is not a sin. Jesus taught that because when he shows up, he doesn't rebuke Thomas. But the disciples also teach us this by not kicking him out of their club. So the disciples let Thomas stay in the group despite his refusal to believe their words. Imagine the awkward moments. Right? We don't have a record. It's not written. We just kind of have the outline of a, of a story from one perspective. But I wonder how many really tense, uncomfortable conversations there were with Thomas and the other dudes. Right? I wonder how many times they insulted each other on accident or on purpose. I wonder how many times Thomas's friends failed to act like Jesus in the moment, but still refused to let go of their relationship. And I wonder how many times Thomas threatened to walk out the door, but then stayed because of something going on in his heart that the Bible doesn't actually tell us exactly what he was feeling. But for some reason, he stayed. And don't think for a second that was easy. He stayed, and so did they. That really matters. And I think this speaks to the way that we respond to people when they don't respond to God the way we want them to. At Life Church, we say that one of our core values is we all belong, but this does not mean we all agree, and it doesn't even have to mean we all get along. One of the things that blew my mind is when I was starting out in my doctorate program, we learned about something uh, that Benedictine monks do. And they've been doing this for generations. Benedictine monks take what is called a vow of stability. A vow of stability is when one monk wants to join a, a monastery, a group of other monks in a specific location, uh, and then practice the way of Jesus together for the rest of their lives. They take what's called a vow of stability, saying, I'm going to remain 
in and a part of this community for the rest of my life. And by the way, they don't make it easy to do that. There are people who show up and they're like, I want to take a vow of stability. And they're like, let's find out if you mean it. So you actually have to be there for several years before they'll even let you take the vow of stability. And then there are people who, uh, like, like the man who was telling me this story is a pastor in a local community, is what's called a Benedictine oblate. He's not a monk. He pastors a local church in a city, but he goes and he's a part of this group. He's committed to them, but he also has a, a wife and he has kids and he's got a church that he pastors and he's a member of a local community. So they said, we want you to be able to do the rhythms, but we know that you actually can't make the vow here at this level. So there's another way that we can do this and remain in community. See, even their, their vow of stability is actually interestingly flexible. And yet there is something to be said about those who abandon all in order to be a part of a community. In fact, I heard a story from this pastor who was introducing this idea to me um, of two specific monks that he knows at the monastery where he goes. They've both taken a vow of stability and they cannot stand each other. Like he was telling stories about how one of the monks has mannerisms that drives the other one absolutely crazy and that goes both ways. And he said, but what's really interesting about this is that these monks have made a vow of stability. They know, I'm not sure we like each other, but we love each other. We're committed to one another, and we're committed to this community and the way that this community blesses the world around this community. And even when we have to, and he told me stories about how sometimes they'll work out their issues amongst themselves, and other times, you know, the head monk, whatever that guy's called, has to come in and like sit him down, like, look, you jokers, figure it out, or whatever, right? And yet they're committed to life together for life because they took a vow of stability. Again, not because they like each other, they don't but they love Jesus. They love Jesus in each other, and they love the other. They've made a commitment. So I wonder what would a vow of stability look like for you when you think about Thomas's story. What commitments would that require for you? What conversations would that require for you? But also, what space would that vow require you to create for other people who are wrestling with doubts about God? What would it look like for us to build a church where we agree about Jesus and everything else gets to be flexible around relationships? Thomas teaches us that doubt is not a sin. Thomas's friends teach us that they know that lesson too. So he got to stay. On a related note, do we name people for their worst moment? We want, we want to shake our head and say no. We want to. But this is bred into the birth of the church, isn't it? It's not in Scripture, and yet somehow it got into our... It's so in our flesh to name people by their worst moment that we all knew, oh, that guy's name is Doubting Thomas. How did you know? Because we've been handing his nickname down for generations. We named a guy by his worst moment. Could Think about your most embarrassing moment. You know the moment that when you're driving down the freeway and you're just in, your, in the car by yourself and then all of a sudden you feel like that same flush of embarrassment that you felt the moment you did the thing you're embarrassed about? You know what I'm talking about. The thing you said in high school, and as soon as it came out of your mouth, right? And you haven't been in high school for a hot minute, and yet it still feels like you're right in that classroom when you said the thing you said. I'm thinking of my moment right now, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Because I don't trust you that much. <laughs> Jesus is still working on me. Give me a break. You know, there's something about what we have done to Thomas, and, it, and, it, and it's in us, and we do this to others, is when we take a person's mistake and we force them to be locked in that moment. I remember sitting down talking to a pastor once who's a staunch Baptist, and I'm a staunch not Baptist, and, um, and, and this man is a member of our community, and I remember sitting down with him and telling him, and, and this is a, there's a long backstory as to why, but I ended up going out to coffee with him, 
And, and the reason I went out to coffee with him was because the Lord gave me a word that said, you're not allowed to have opinions about people you don't know. And I had strong opinions about this guy because I heard some things that he said about my tribe, the Pentecostal folks, the Foursquare people, and, and, and I had had opinions because I was raised to have opinions about this guy, right? It's funny. I was raised to, be, to believe that another guy who preaches the gospel of Jesus was my enemy because of something he said once. About people, like, I don't, I don't even know if I was alive when he said it. And yet I'm carrying this offense on behalf of my people. So, I, so the Lord tells me this thing, and I go out to coffee with him, and I said, here, let me tell you this story. This is how I got here. This is what I felt like the Lord said to me. And I just wanted to say to you, I'd like to form an opinion of you based on a relationship, personally, rather than what somebody told me. Even if it turns out that they were right, I would just like to know. And he chuckled. Like a man who's been through a lot of life chuckles when a young man tells him a thing that he thinks he understands. He chuckled. I have more gray hair than I used to, so now I've felt what that chuckle feels like, um, but only once or twice. And so he chuckles this chuckle, and, and I kind of was like, what's that about? And he says, you know, the funniest thing about the church and the saddest thing about the church is how the church won't let you grow up. He said, I'm sorry, I would never say that about your people now, but I did say it. He asked me to let him grow up. Hmm. If you're going to lock a person into the last thing they did to you, you don't understand that Jesus let you out of all of the things that you did. And when Jesus shows up in the room, he doesn't look at Thomas and go, he doesn't say to the crowd, peace be with you, and then look at Thomas and go, well, you suck. He doesn't look at Thomas and say, it sure would have been nice if you had gotten this faith thing right. Have fun in hell. And yet we say that to people every single time. We force people to be held in their mistakes. And you prove not that they are bad, but that you don't understand the grace of Jesus. God, forgive us. And forgive us for the ways that we have taught Christians for generations to do this. And maybe we need to stop calling this man Doubting Thomas. Love does not hold people in their worst moment. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love heals. Love is patient and kind. And read 1 Corinthians to find out what else it is. But when people are stuck, we need to commit to love them until they aren't anymore. And even if they are until they die, we love them anyway. That sounds radical. That sounds so anti-Western Christian culture. Let me share with you a final thought and one more story, and then I'd like to pray. Here's a final thought. It is important when talking about giving space for doubt that we don't stop there. Everything I've said so far is important for us to understand. There is a space for doubt in our lives. It is not a sin to have doubts, but don't stop there, right? Thomas doesn't only teach us that we're allowed to have doubts. Thomas's story teaches us that Jesus will meet us in our doubts, probably not on your timeline. He probably won't walk in the door that you were expecting him to walk into. Sometimes he just shows up, and sometimes he doesn't the way that you want him to. Sometimes he doesn't say what you want, and sometimes he shows up and teaches you a lesson. Sometimes he shows up and says nothing. Sometimes he shows up in the embrace of a friend. Sometimes he shows up as you open scripture. Sometimes he shows up because you woke up today. And Thomas teaches us, Jesus will show up. Are you on the lookout for his arrival? He's always on the way. He is always working. If you are experiencing doubts, fears, pain, anger, depression, anxiety, my encouragement to you is to hold on to the hope that you have in the gospel. Jesus sees you. 
He loves you. He does have a plan for you. How do I know? You woke up today. You being here matters. I mean that in the, please don't give up your life sense. You being here on this planet matters. There is something significant about the, the fact that you showed up today. You being here matters. Oh my goodness, with all of the stuff you're dealing with, you, you're here. You're here. You made it this far. Jesus is with you, even if you don't feel it. Don't give up on your hope. There is hope. And I would also add, if you need prayer, we're here to pray. We're here to pray with you. We, we would be honored to pray with you. In fact, when this service is over, Elizabeth is going to be right by that wall with the light over it. Marcus is going to be right by that wall with the light over it. I'll be floating around. If you need someone to pray for you, we would love to pray for you. If you need a counselor, be like your pastor. Get a therapist. Let's undo that stigma because that's just fear, Right? Here's, let me tell you a final story. It's about Thomas. Again, this story is not in Scripture, but this, I didn't make this one up just to prove a sermon illustration. I have good reason to believe this is actually a historically accurate story that's been handed down by the church in verbal and written form for 2,000 years. In about A.D. 52, so roughly 20 years after uh, the risen Jesus meets Thomas in a room, Thomas moves to India. And, and the story goes that after... Thomas gets to India, he raises the very first cross in India. People start asking him questions about it. And uh, he encounters a, a group of, of Brahmins who practice this tradition, this religious tradition in India, uh, pantheistic, many, many gods. And one of the traditions uh, that they were uh, practicing to appease one or several of their gods was to take uh, water, whether it was in their hands or in a bucket, I'm not, I'm not sure, uh, but they would take the water and they would throw it up into the air as a way to uh, make this kind of like appeasing sacrifice to, to please their one, one or several of their gods. Thomas sees this as he's encountering this group of Brahmins. He, he observes it, and then he asks them a question. He says, if this was pleasing to your gods, why does the water fall back to earth? <laughs> yeah. And then he adds, my God would accept such a sacrifice. So the story goes that Thomas took whatever, whether it was in his hands or in a bucket, that he took the water and he threw some of the water up in the air, and it floated in the air in front of them. There was a crowd of people watching this, and many of them converted to Christianity on the spot. <laughs> Thomas goes on to plant seven church-planting churches in India over the next 20 years until he was martyred for the gospel of Jesus. We tell that story so that we can remember that Thomas the man who overcame his doubts reminds us that your darkest moment does not have to be your defining moment. So what could tomorrow bring? Where could God send you to be the representative of faith if you give Jesus your doubts today? To work? To your neighborhood? to your friends, maybe to the person sitting near you right now in this moment? I have no idea. I don't know. But I know that if you woke up this morning, he's not done with you yet. I want to invite you to pray two things today. Number one, I want to invite you to present your full heart to Jesus. You have doubts. You have fears. You have feelings and questions that have gone unanswered. And contrary to popular belief, as your pastor, it is not my job to answer those questions, but to fix your brokenness, to abate your fears, or to calm your anxiety. I can't, can't do any of those things. I can only point you to Jesus, who loves you, who sees you, and who knows what you're feeling and why you're feeling it even better than you do, and who is the solution to what you are going through. So I want to invite you to present your heart to Jesus in prayer. 
And I, and I want to challenge you to thank him in the middle of what you're feeling for his love in the middle of what you're feeling. I'm going to lead you to pray that in just a moment. The second thing I want to invite you to pray is that you would pray for your fellow students of Jesus who are also wrestling with doubt. We start with presenting our own doubts to Jesus so that we don't get arrogant when we pray for other people, right? Ask God to give you a chance to show love to people and to welcome people and maybe even pray for them by name today. Can I I lead you in those two moments of prayer? I'm going to invite you to pray, and then I'd like to pray a blessing over you before we end. Could you just take a moment and present your own heart to Jesus? Maybe maybe you want to put your hands out before Jesus with your palms up. There's nothing magical about that, certainly, but it's it's some kind of a physical posture that says, Jesus, I just want to present my heart to you right now. And just right where you are sitting, could you say out loud some kind of words at whatever volume you feel like you need to, but with your mouth, could you say to Jesus something that sounds similar to Jesus, I present my full heart to you. And whether it's fears or doubts or anxiety or depression or you want to name a specific issue, you could say, Jesus, I I present this to you, this place where I feel like I I haven't seen you move yet or I haven't felt like there's been an answer yet or I, I have questions or I'm confused. I present this to you now. And then as you make that presentation to him, could you, in faith that Jesus responds, would you say to him, thank you for meeting me in the middle of this. And then from this place, would you begin to just name whether it's groups of people or specific people that you know that are on a journey, hopefully towards Jesus, but that are on a, that are on a journey that, that doesn't look like being at peace with Jesus right now? Would you just begin to name some people who have doubts and questions and fears? If you don't know anybody specifically, uh, let this be an invitation to find some people who don't know Jesus so that you can begin to pray for them by name. But you can certainly pray, God, there are many people around me who don't know you like I do. There are many people who have doubts and fears in the Antelope Valley, and I pray that you would meet them in that place where they are on their journey, that you would walk into the room where they are, and that you would love them in the middle of what they are facing. And I would challenge and invite you to make that a daily prayer in your life. And then I would pray this blessing over you, friends. May you experience in the name of Jesus the transforming peace and presence of Jesus in the room where you hold your doubts. May all of your attempts to pretend that you do not have doubts fail miserably. May you be found in community that embraces you in the midst of your doubts. And may you be one who holds other doubters in safe community. May you fully receive the heart, transforming grace and peace of Jesus. And may you be a blessing of grace and peace to the world around around you. In the name of Jesus, our risen King. Amen.